The following is a conversation with Shore, a climber, a coach, a route setter, and also a musician. He is also the president of Braga's Climbing Club, also known as Club Escalada de Braga. As someone who only recently discovered and started indoor bouldering, it was exciting to talk and learn from his experience. Climbing as a sport has a long tradition, but only recently it has become mainstream, as illustrated by its first appearance in the Olympics this year. This creates the opportunity for the sport to discover novel paths forward, and I find it exciting to be witnessing this era of discovery and experimentation. It was also very interesting for me to discuss with him some of which these paths might be, and to reflect together on the deeper meaning of the sport. As always, I provide the timestamps for the conversation, and now, here it is. Good, let's go. Hello, Philip. Hello. Or as your friends call you, sure. Yeah, it's mainly sure. Nobody calls me Philip. Yeah, I think this is the first time I see you away from a climbing wall, so it's a bit of, out of context. I'm a bit surprised. Yeah, it may be true. Yeah. Yeah, it feels like I'm watching a species outside the habitat, <laughs> <laughs> like a fish, like whatever. Well, yeah, yeah. Well, because we kind of met in a very specific reality, so. I, I think it makes sense for you. But yeah. Uh, I'm actually used to being in different kind of stages, so it's, it's, it's okay. It'll I think fun. that's one interesting thing about people is that we all exist in multiple dimensions yeah. and we know, we ourselves, we know <laughs> that we are different people. We have different uh, groups, we have different likings and we interact in all these planes. But usually when we meet someone, they only know us from one perspective. Yeah, true. So for us, we exist in their perspective. And in your case, I know you're very diversified, musician, climber. Yeah, I, I did a, I, I've done a lot of things in, in my life, so it will maybe we'll go there. It will be interesting. But yeah, it's funny when people just know like a, a side of you, a very small side of you. So it can be interesting. <laughs> Let's see. You feel you're very mysterious in that sense. No, I, I think, I, I mean, I, I tend to be a shy person, especially that was um, a side of my personality I always struggle with. I was really, really shy. That was something that it really bothered me. Hmm. So I, I did my best, especially during the teenage time, to kind of fight it, you know, to overcome it. And... I think now, nowadays when people know me and they won't tell that I, I'm a shy person because I, I worked really hard on it, but that's the truth. And I've been playing with bands, I've been giving interviews for quite a long time, so I have my tools to kind of camouflage it, but yeah, yeah. yeah so I, 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 I will see. <laughs> But I'm not mysterious. I, I may be shy sometimes. I would never say you're shy. You don't yeah. come across as a shy guy. Because you're like, you're... Firstly, due to your activities, like you're a musician. So musician involves putting yourself in front of people. Yeah, I, I did it on purpose because I wanted to be in situations that were where I need to overcome my, my issue. So I always tried... I may have many defects, like everybody, I think, but that was probably the defect that I hated the most on me. So that was the one where I worked the most. Mm. And so I pushed myself all the time to be in situations 
where I need to deal with it. So and I think that's why when, when you meet me today, uh, you, it doesn't show so much. And also, like you said, you, you know me on my environment, so I'm kind of in control of all the situations. So I'm in a comfortable position. It's totally different. For instance, when you are giving an interview and you have no idea what we'll be talking about and stuff, then, then it, it, you know, there are new elements that you need to, you're not controlling, so you're going to get more protective about it. I think that what you did is the way to go when we have a difficulty in ourselves, in our mind, is just not running away and facing it head on. I think that's quite brave and that's the approach. Well... Like I said, maybe I, I have more defects that I'm kind of comfortable, let's say, with it, that we tend to accept. And, but what I hated the most, especially when I was a teenager and I was really debating with the, with the issue, was that I was not saying something or I was not doing something because I was too shy at the moment. And that, that was something when I... I was thinking about it later that I was not able to forgive to myself and that's why I work so much on it. Yeah. I see. Is that the kind of thing that was going through your mind? Like when we talk to a girl when we're young and we then we go home and say, oh man, I should have said this. Yeah, this also, also, them, also, that yeah. kind of things. I mean, <laughs> not, not only, but also, yeah. yeah. I see. I mean, when you're a teenager, there is a lot of focus on the girls, for sure. So, but yeah, there was a part with the, that not that wasn't mostly about the girls. You know, there's not like only that. Um, like you have, in, I kind of wanted to have my life on control which took several years because now I, I kind of create my job, I do where I work, but for many years it wasn't like that. And in order to do that, you need to be able to step up, you know, and to go and meet people and talk to them and explain the ideas and sell your ideas. And for, for that, mm -hmm. being shy, it's, 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 it's a huge issue. So yeah. that's something I need to work with. I said girls as an, as an example because I yeah, also... I felt the same when I was growing up. I was entering university and I was really shy. The kind of, not geek, but not the extrovert kind of guy. And I had some cousins or some friends that were very friendly, very extrovert. And I always admired them because I was yeah. thinking, how can you be like this? Or actually, how can I be like you? <laughs> and very, very often I would have some encounters and social encounters with girls or friends. And I would be thinking, what should I have said? What could, could be different? Because I knew I was subpar. Yeah, but even even that, it's it's a little bit like when we are climbing. If if you have to do that management all the time, it doesn't come natural yet. You get tired from it, you know. And it's not totally spontaneous. And I wanted to get to that point where I don't need to be managing. Okay, so how do I need to react now? How do what do I need to say? You know, so. Yeah, that's why I push myself to the limit and to try to be as much uncomfortable mm -hmm. on this shy part as possible. So you learn to be natural and as, I mean, 
you're not never 100% natural special when you are on stage or uh, working or you know you know we need to keep some pose let's say but yeah to to ride as natural as possible that that's the goal yeah about the climbing because i always have this <laughs> this um, example it's the same. You want you want to be climbing as natural as possible and don't need to be processing every part of what you're doing all the time. Like, am I stepping in the right way? Am I holding it the right way? Am I do you know? You just aim to go with the flow and just get to the point as easy and as natural as possible. That's what we I think all aim, and and here in the, in the society is kind of the same. So it's not like... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Well, the conversation will naturally shift to climbing. So let's yeah. go there. We were discussing before we started recording some of the terminology that was being used. And I had some questions. Specifically, we were talking between translations between Portuguese to English. Yeah. But maybe it could be interesting to speak about the English terms themselves. Mm -hmm. I was making you some questions about how should we say something in Portuguese, vias, that in English could be translated either to root or to boulders? Uh, kind of, yeah. Vias uh, in Portuguese um, will translate to English as roots. Uh, when, when we're talking about roots, we, we have the, the concept that, that a root that you will climb is something really high. So when you're doing bouldering, the indoors that there is a, um, a rule that you can never overcome the four and a half meters so under four and a half meters it's a boulder normally higher than that it will be it will start to be a route because you will need to use um, a rope mm -hmm. instead of a crash pad or a mattress for it so a via it's specifically something that you will climb with a um, rope and it will be higher so it enters the sport climb or the traditional climb. Uh, the, the other part that we kind of use normally, even the English word, which is bloco, it will translate to boulder. Although boulder has different meanings, even for climbing. When you translate it to Portuguese, it can mean different uh, things uh, depending on the context. But yeah, so if it's something higher and what we normally use uh, here it's a boulder or a problem. And the boulder in this case can be both indoor and outdoor. Yeah. And you also mentioned that the boulder was sometimes called problems. Uh, exactly, because the, the word in English boulder comes from like a big rock. Mm -hmm. And when you're setting, especially in the, in the new philosophy, let's say, uh, Sometimes, uh, well, not, not sometimes, most of the time, actually, it's not something of I want to create a line to go high, but more of a complex uh, puzzle, let's say. Um, and it can be even a side to side puzzle. It doesn't even need to go uh, vertical. So, um, yeah, uh, we kind of use this uh, concept of problems, puzzles. Uh, it doesn't need to be a boulder all the time. 
although that's what comes from the original sport that started outside and most of the time we still use uh, the bolder word for it. Well, by trade I am a researcher so I'm a bit picky about terminology because mm -hmm. in my field there's a lot of terminology going over the place but the you using the word problem struck me highly because I've always seen climbing as a problem-solving sport. It is. So isn't abstract in abstract the um, a route also a form of problem solving? Well, when you're climbing, you need to be making decisions all the time. So you need to be solving problems for sure. But if you put it in that way, I mean, you're solving problems pretty much in every sport. Um, when you talk problems in in the boulder, normally when you're creating that, we as a root setter, we are aiming for something a little bit more complex. Uh, probably something that you may need to try a couple of times to figure out what may work, what may not work. And that is independent of you will be able to do it or not, because that, then it's related to your climbing level, let's say. But the aim when you're setting a problem, mm -hmm. it's more of that, that puzzle part that even if you are not able, you, you need to struggle in finding what may and not work to solve that. Of course, when you're climbing on, um, on a route, on a high line, um, there are some choices and sometimes we even say that there are problems or boulders in, in some section. When we refer to that as the more complex part, something that it's not so uh, clear, it's not so obvious and how is the best uh, way to, to overcome it. So that, that's why we, we use this more specific uh, part of... Uh, Problem Words. solving. Yeah, right? yeah. No. Okay. Um, the, the translation. <laughs> Sorry. No, no problem. You, you also said an interesting uh, word that was in quotes when I'm setting a problem or when I'm setting a route. And one big aspect of you is that you're a great route setter. We've have experience climbing in your gym. It was It is amazing usually, and that's also reinforced by the learnings that we have when we go somewhere else or like we did this week we went mm -hmm. to Porto Porto had a great gym as well great yeah. problems great routes and something that usually comes across is that people comment in a positive way your route setting mm -hmm. and I think it's great like this week also you made a very original one you put a tire in a yeah, swing yeah. it yeah. was so fun it was so creative I had never even occurred that <laughs> A swing could be part of a boulder as a tire. It was great. Well, I mean, I, I've been an artist, let's say. I, I don't I don't like to talk about myself as, as an artist, but I, I can say that I always consider myself a creative person. But I, I've been in arts and music for a long time, and I, I see some parallels in, in both... In, stuff that I do because you need to be creative but when you are creative most of the time you're also recycling uh, 
uh, your experience and what you saw and so for you the tire can be new but probably I've seen maybe not the tire but some elements that it's not uh, fixed it's moving in a way and I decided to adapt and I have many more ideas um, the concept of using moving holds in climbing it's not new um, yeah and I just saw it in the garage sometimes like mm, I'm uh, I'm going to take this and someday I'm going to do something different with them and let the kids play and let everybody older feel like kids also than playing. So. It's a great idea, but creativity is not from entirely from zero to one. It's about taking something that already exists, adapting it slightly and creating something different. Yeah. Because we are all inspired by something in some way. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to say. It's the same with music because it's it's almost impossible nowadays to come across with something totally new that nobody ever heard so you're always like remaking something you know so yeah it's the same and for you you can hear like a song and say okay this is very original but probably for for the artist they know for where the inspiration comes from and what was the process to get there so of course but that happens in every art yeah yeah anyway so that's what I, would say. I don't think you should bother much about that no that's i'm not worried i'm not worried about it it's just like, like you said for you it's very original and somebody may be watching us later and say mm, no i've seen that somewhere <laughs> or something so yeah that's, yeah. that's anyway. the point anyway you are a very accomplished root setter at the national level at least I was wondering, and I wanted to ask you this, when you are setting a route, what goes through your mind? What do you try to capture? Uh, you know, I, I think I'm still trying to find myself as a route setter. Um, and for that, I mean, like, trying to understand, it's the same like in the music, try to understand what makes us unique, or what puts us apart from the rest, no, like you said, we went to to other gym this week, and there were some com comments after, like, "Oh, I like this, I uh, like this better," and on the other side, and this is the kind of things that for me are really important because I want to understand what adds value to the experience of the of each person, and if if like is if you come to the gym and you think you are having a good experience there, I I try to understand. What is making the difference for you? Like, what, what translates for the user of a good root setting and a bad root setting? Why people prefer this kind of problem? Um, so I'm, I'm really trying to understand the differences, but mostly I try to set movement. And I try, I try to create, the, because that, that's what I'm more passionate about when I'm climbing. I'm not so attracted by like really powerful and really strong moves. Like you need to be an amazing athlete to to overcome it. But more of you need to understand how to move your body to to get there. And that's sort of the part where I like more. And it's also easier to create the puzzles. So the technique? basically like yeah. how you position your body how you shift your weight yeah like how, how to lock yourself to be able to move this hand or 
a coordination move to get to the other part instead of always being very static and following the logic on one hand over the other, you know, all the time. So, yeah, I, for instance, in, in the other gym, I felt the root setting, it's more in the traditional line, you know, everything is more kind of a sequence that it's it's easier at least to to understand when you are in the base uh, of course there is like really hard problems and i really struggle it's not connected to that but i i try to set something that even if you need to climb with normal shoes you will have fun right is this related somehow to the creativity aspect you were saying yeah i think so one thing or one episode that I remember that happened. We were in, in SEP, in your gym, and uh, some girl was climbing some, some route. And at the end, right before she reached the top, she fell. And I remember that you commented, I don't know if you remember, but you said something. The fact that she fell was bad on my route setting. It was my fault that she fell because after she reached that point, she should not have fallen. Okay. It was a white boulder. I have no idea about the... But, uh, do you understand, do you remember yeah. the kind of meaning that you try to convey with that sentence? Well, I, I don't recall the example, but when, when you set, um, yeah, you, as a root setter, you also create uh, expectations, you know? Um, like a very common expectation for root setters is the beta. The beta is the, the solution for that people will need to find to to get to the top. So most root setters tend to get a little bit disappointed when the beta that they intended to is not the beta used. Maybe somebody found an easier solution, let's say. Um, and that on the industry we call beta breakers. So th that's an example of you creating uh, an expectation. I, I want to create like a dyno move, let's say, where you need to be really dynamic and then somebody comes across and does it really static and still manage. That's a failure for my root setting, for my... Um, yeah, from my perspective, because that, that was not my goal. It can still be a great problem, but for me, that's bad the root setting because I'm failing to promote the moves that I wanted. And probably from the example you're saying, um, I think what happened was that I wanted the crooks, which is the hardest section, to be below the problem and not the top of the problem. So that's probably what I fail. I was expecting that if everybody does this move, then they will be able to get to the top. And maybe she didn't because I, I don't recall. Maybe she was not tall enough or I have not uh, anticipate the, the move she is going to do and the move just came wrong. So that's bad, bad root setting. That's, that's a failure. But when an athlete does not perform the beta that you expect as a root setter is it really a failure on your root setting no. or is it a strength of the athlete also no no it depends i mean 
Well, yeah, and it's actually an interesting point because we set in a non-commercial way because when you set in a commercial way, you just want people to come in and do as many problems on the grade that they are comfortable or they want to climb as much as possible. Uh, we have a total different concept because we're trying to make people progress uh, as better and as faster as possible. So we have a root setting philosophy, let's say, of teaching, promoting new movements, promoting learning, promoting experiencing different stuff. That's also where the tire comes from. Uh, because there are new elements that you need to learn how to deal with. And so you can set a really good problem, like you did your pro job, let's say perfect, mm -hmm. and still these athletes won't be able to climb it. Or you can set a, bit, a really bad problem and people are really happy because they get to the top and you know they made it. So the ego part is really happy and still he did a, a lousy job. So it, it's not really connected. The, actually, most of the time, I, I, I do some mind games, let's say, where I put the section that I want to train, like, let's say like in the beginning, and then I put a really hard parts on top that is not interesting for me to promote, but you'll keep people resetting because they will fail on top, so they need to restart and do the section that I want them to learn over and over and over again. It's like putting the carrot in front of them that I want you to train this. I don't know if you should say this, because now people will rage <laughs> yeah. against you. Like it, you're treating it's us the like ego, <laughs> you know, we just play with the ego of the people yeah. to, to teach them. So it, it will always work, even if you know it. <laughs> <laughs> And now I regret when sometimes <laughs> if I do, if I fail on the top part, we usually shit and we start in the middle and yeah. we go on. So yeah, that, that's not normally something that really pisses me off. And also, and also I, I think that's uh, not a very good philosophy as an athlete. Um, Isn't it in a way effort management? Because if you know you it, you nail the bottom part and you really struggle on the top, it can be. It can be a tool and it can also be a runaway pass. It depends. Um, so we, we cannot generalize that. But normally, if you're, I mean, a, a boulder, it's, it's actually in a sequence of very few movements normally. So it's, no, we're not talking about uh, routes like really high and long lines. So the, the idea, the concept is that you do all the sequence without stopping this very short powerful and puzzling uh, sequence if you're I, i'm just talking about training now if you're skipping it you're getting your wrong idea because most of the times you're not starting the movement the same way as if you're doing it from the, you know it's like you can put your already yourself in in the comfortable position and and also you're not dealing with getting tired there and being pumped and your heartbeat being too fast you know all these um, issues that you you need to manage when you're doing it from start of course that 
there is no point of doing it a hundred times straight and keep failing in the same time because maybe you're not doing the right technique and you need to practice that or you need to understand it. So for that kind of strategy, we call isolate. You're isolating the move and that's a tool, but that's a tool that only should only be used when it's the right time and not like a, a pattern like it's is what I do. Oh, I felt here. I will restart here. That that's a really bad philosophy for me. I think as an athlete, as a, an athlete and as a beginner athlete, my experience in using that tool is when I need to embed in my muscles the muscle memory of a yeah, certain yeah. movement. As if, you said in the beginning, if you're starting, it, it's uh, it's more common to use it because there are technique issues that need to be addressed. So, if if you are learning a new move, it's normal that you need to practice just that move. And if you'll get there and you are tired, you won't be able to learn that move probably perfectly. So, yeah. It, it makes more sense when you are starting to just practice the moves and practice the moves and practice the moves until you perfect it. And then you can start using this move. It's a tool and you can start using it to break the puzzles that we form for you. So definitely you should be using it more when you're starting and less and less and less when you are progressing in your climbing career, let's say. Exactly, because as we mentioned in the beginning, you don't you cannot allow yourself to be thinking about everything when you're climbing because that's just too much information yeah. you just need to climb naturally yeah and at least i've been feeling that for me one part of becoming natural and not really thinking about everything is just making sure that i know to myself i can do this i know where to put my hands how to put a hand so i just practice that isolation i was going to say that also there is this ego part where sometimes, and we're back, going back to the other word setting, where sometimes people, they kind of close the problem once they top it, you know? And yeah, because the ego is there, like, oh, I've done it. But that's also a really bad way of training because when you top a problem, most of the times you're still really far away from the optimal solution. Yeah, you struggle, you shake. Yeah, you know, it's all, <laughs> so your ego is really happy because, oh, I've done it and this was really hard. But it, it's kind of rare the, to find this athlete that said, no, I, I need to make this e easier or I need to climb this effortless. So I, I need to keep working on this. But then the ego is not motivated anymore. You know, it's just like, oh, then it just becomes a work and it's different. Also, I need to manage all this stuff on our club because we have lots of people with different motivations. You have people that they just come because they want to do something else or they just want to have two hours without not thinking uh, about the rest of their professional or emotional life, whatever. And then you have these people that want to go and do competition and have their competition goals and stuff. And we need to have all this mixture uh, in a very small gym and have them all motivated and keep them coming. So it's, it's also a struggle to, to balance all. <laughs> yeah, for sure. But I suffer a bit from that ego, especially because I climb with someone else, a friend of mine, and he's a bit better than me. 
to be modest and he's usually ahead of me so he's always pushing me so when he does something he almost always does it before i do so he does it he's moving on to something else and i don't want to fall behind so i feel i need to keep trailing behind him well having having somebody that you can compare to and that is pushing you forward it's it's kind of a very good way of improving uh, we we also try to promote this as much as possible especially with the kids because i mean we don't want to be pointing out like oh this is better than you you need to get to that level that it's totally not what we want to do but we know that again the mind games come on board for instance if i want i have an athlete that is struggling with jumping let's say and i know that they compare each other i will set a jump that the other guy can easily do <laughs> that's evil <laughs> well so then i know this person will be motivated to also do the jump otherwise they will just say oh i don't know how to jump and they will do something else you know so that's a way of pushing people actually what we do most of the time is pushing people out of their comfort zone so these mind games also come on board and having someone that you can relate to it really helps motivate you yeah for sure yeah. i also noticed maybe this is a curiosity or not that most of the people who come to your club at least they come in pairs i don't know if it's because just the people who climb the longest they tend to form pairs because they are more motivated or is this the mechanics of the sport that when you come to climbing since it's so easily easily sociable that you just bring a friend well uh I mean, if you take apart the couples, uh, I I don't agree with um, that most of people come in, in pairs. There is, of course, a big number. I mean, it's easier when you go climbing with your cousin or your friend uh, for a lot of reasons. Also motivation, logistics. Um, but I think the older you get, the more motivated you are to go climb alone even if nobody is going with you that that's what i found from my experience and from the people around me for for like 16 or 17 years uh, it's easier i had an experience where when i was starting to where all my friends like start skipping practice and when they were skipping sometimes i was skipping also because i didn't i don't want to go alone and at some point I skip like I don't remember like two times in a row or something and my partner again was skipping and I was like I'm so tired I came late from work I'm going to stay home and then I said to myself no if I'm staying home today I will never be back because this is just gold like down spiral so I start going alone and from that point on if I have company great if I need to go alone it's okay and I think most people are, are okay in going to the gym alone, especially also because in opposite from like the other experience, being a small gym and where pretty much everybody knows each other, it, it's a very social experience. And I, I know that from people outside climbing, they, they think that it's a very lonely sport, like very individual sport. And But for us, it's actually a very social experience. And... Uh, 
people tend to mingle a lot when you're not climbing and it's just like because there is a lot of uh, rest periods and yeah I, I think people are comfortable in going with the gym wi without even having a partner of course if you are a couple or in your case for instance you, you started with your cousin it's easier and Again, it's the same like in, in, in training. If you have something, someone that motivates you to go, okay, let's go. You know, one is pushing the other and maybe we go one more time that we will go this week if, because he's inviting me. Or, so that, that's a good thing, but I don't, I don't see it either as a rule or as a necessary part of it. Right. Um, and one thing that also encourages people to attend is the personalization that you make in your gym. It is a really small space. And in a way, the fact that it's so small, everyone is so together. And the fact that you also target the problem directly to the ability of each person, yeah. it really feels like yeah. each individual is being catered to and is being taken care of. It's actually emotionally and psychologically, you feel well going there because you're like, okay, here I can really progress. Well, that's actually a very big bonus, I think, for people that climb in this kind of environment. Because, like you said, the route setting is very direction to, to, to the people that climb there. Because if I want to have the route setting that is teaching and, and promoting learning, uh, I, I need to set specific and I have to have these body images and skill uh, potential images of the people that are climbing there so I can help them and also push them out of the comfortable zone so I think that's a really big experience and also being this small I think it's you know I have these memories from Tragimontes like my region and going there and visit my my family and you go to the coffee you know, and entering there, let's say, with my uncle and everybody is greeting them. And, you know, like even if people don't know, you already feel like welcome and you feel like chill. it doesn't matter. I mean, the color of the tables or the view, it's about the familiar vibe that, that you feel when you enter the place. And you can be, I don't know, in a big capital, in a big nice bar or whatever but if you are alone and you don't know anybody there there there's something missing you know there's something missing and uh, it, i find it funny on how you people experience and give priority to to this kind of environment of course i will i would love to have a bigger gym and better conditions everything we have there it was made by us or it's far from optimal but on the other side it's very unique and i think it adds value for for the people that are there especially when you go and you already know everybody that's climbing new and you're relaxed it's it's a and everybody's helping each other you know something that you try to promote from the start like this cooperation vibe instead of the competition vibe that we we're talking before to go about to go soon about competition but before we go into competition i would like to ask you something about the root setting that you do just to finish it up because mm -hmm. we were talking about the philosophy of root setting 
and I also wanted to ask you the actual methodology of fruit setting and I will explain better because I've had the privilege to observe as your root set and it seems that you're doing it in a very exploratory manner as in you put the first hold and then you look at the wall and you put the second hold and then you try the movement and you see where your hand reaches I wanted to know like, is there something on your mind before you root yeah. set or you just really just explore and go with the flow and see how it well it, it depends there are different approaches um i was i was talking with my wife yesterday and it's funny because i was i was telling her that most of the time when i'm putting the kid to sleep and it takes forever <laughs> <laughs> Can you uh, imagine? that that's when i root set the most in so, your mind yeah most of the root setting happens there um but I tend not to root set in a very strict way for me that like, again, it's about the movement or I have like these two, three step sequence that I want to promote when I'm actually on the gym setting, I have already this concept. I think about what will be the better space and the better holds to promote this and then you have this experimentation part where you need to see if it really works the way you intended and is there a way of using these holds to break the beta that we were talking before. So there is a lot of things to take in consideration. The reach, who am I setting for? Because for me, the same problem, I can set it for a kid of 10 or I can set it for you and it will be total different holds and total different uh, range of moves. So, but still for me, in my mind, it's the same, just in practice, it's totally different. So yeah, you have all these uh, variants, but also a lot of time, you just go with the flow and the creativity, you know, it's like opening the fridge, where am I going to cook today? I have these, 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 and these, you are creative and you come up with something that you would like to eat. It's kind of the same. I was reading an interview the other day with uh, Chris Sharma that used to be one of the biggest champions like uh, in the end of the 90s and he was do he was telling about when he's root setting that most of the time when he has this idea he tries to enforce it so much that most of the time either he spends a lot of time trying to set exactly what he had in mind or he just strips everything out and he decides to do a totally different stuff. And he finds for him that the best way to set is just go with the flow. So he starts putting the holds. And it's also a, um, a very interesting way of setting. It's like what I would like to do when I get to this position. What I think it will be different, uh, you know, out of the box, let's say. And you just go with it or there is a lot of style also, you know, it's the way you climb or the way you like to climb or even the way you like to see other people climb. And then you, because sometimes we also have this side is, is a little bit like being a choreographer. Like I will set the moves that you'll use on your dance, you know, on your choreography and so there is some aesthetics part on it and also so it really depends. It's not like I always have this process and I always do it like that. 
And most of all, I, I think we need, as a root setter, we need to try to be as more flexible in the mindset as possible. Like, don't be afraid to try different stuff. Don't be afraid to put a tire or to have fun. And don't be afraid to take it all out. If, but it's actually something that it's not very common for us when we're setting. It, it happens sometimes, but it's, it's not common to come to the gym the next day and look at the problem or see people climbing and are even climbing and say, oh, this, this is terrible. I'm going to take it off. Or I'm maybe doing some adjustments from time to time if I'm not totally fulfilled on the move or maybe people are pushing too hard in a move that I don't want to be the focus, for instance, or I don't want to be strengths uh, limited let's say like if you're not strong enough you cannot do it and i don't want that so i will change it make it easier or make it harder try to balance the boulder because there are different sections and if this section is really hard then it makes no sense to have a really easy part and so i try to do something harder or more complex after it but yeah man so it is either a combination of you have a movement in your head in abstract and then you try to implement it mm -hmm. in a way whether it's longer more spaced out for bigger people or more clamped together for smaller guys but just a movement in abstract or you just go with the flow and see yeah. what movement you would like to do next which will be interesting to do actually i don't know if many people noticed it but normally when i said like two or three problems in a row there will be a lot of common elements on both of them or on all of them because I'm probably exploring these, these move and different ways of setting this move. Let's say I want to create uh, a move where you need to lock your feet below. So you're, so it's very probable that you will find it, this move in, in, in problems that were set really close to each other, let's say, because I'm I'm also uh, learning and trying it out and see how it works. And I want to set this for adults, but I also want to set it for kids because I want them to have the same experience and the same learning. So you will find this in. So th the idea of the move it's is here is the same, but then when you put it in practice, it can show up in many different ways. That's beautiful because the more you talk about it, it's as if you were describing an art or as an artist, really, because that's what artists also do. They have this in mind, like a painting. I want to paint a field of grass with some crowds above and you paint this version and then you paint that version at night and then you paint the same painting during the day or during the dawn or during winter or summer. And you have this idea and you manifest different iterations of the same idea yeah well yeah it is it, i don't remember inside you they do uh, in arts here it's, it's yeah tests so there it's very common on arts that they test and they do like multiple times it's it's a similar there is a big debate of root setting being an art or just being an handcraft uh, job, let's say. Uh, but I mean, I think it's really hard 
to be creative and not having an artist's side on it. I mean, I don't, I don't consider myself as a rootstatter. I don't consider myself an artist, but I do consider myself creative, like we talked before. So there is some artistic part of it. I'm not trying to make something beautiful in the wall, but I do like to look to the wall and see some aesthetics that are pleasant. And I do like to see people climbing it in an aesthetic way, for example. So these are all elements that come uh, on board when you're setting. I think it's a very big picture with uh, lots of elements from many jobs and then there is an art side on it. I, I will not say that root setters are an artist for sure, but there is an artistic part. I understand the point and I think that I agree because if you were to ask me, I would not say that root setting is an art in itself because it does not really involve the intellectualization of emotions as normally art does, writing, painting. It can. Can it? Yeah. And not at least, maybe it can. This, again, is not something that is set in stone. It's subject to change. Yeah, yeah. No, but I, I, I like the debate because, again, we're playing with the ego and we're trying to give you emotions and not, not the same way that when you're hearing like uh, music that it really changes your mood just for listening that music or or that painting or that movie that will make you cry or you know get emotional or whatever but the experience you're having in the gym or with a specific uh, problem there is a lot of emotions going on that we play and that we aim for so again it's not an art i will not consider an art but especially because i think an artist will value uh, its job too much to just like erase it after yeah. <laughs> you know because we, we, we keep doing it and we keep erasing it so unless you make a video out of it or it it will die but not all the art it's I mean, some art is very ephemeral, so it, it's... <laughs> I'm just remem remembering of that painting. I don't know the name of the guy, but it became very famous recently. It was an exhibition, and when the painting when it was exhibited, it tear it shreds yeah. apart. It's self-destructed. It's self-destructed. Right? So yeah. that guy clearly does not value his work also. Well, that, that's also, I mean, that's also part of the art in, in itself, right? Yeah, and we are talking about it because yeah. it's self-destructed. So, yeah, but uh, there is some art on it. Also, I mean, it also depends on how you set and what's your goal. Because, you, I mean, not, not everything that I set, I have this mindset, you know, like I want to challenge people or sometimes it's just something like okay i'm going to let the holds create a problem so they need to learn how to swap feet or so something more basic but as it progresses in complexity it tends to go and touch other areas let's say i i think it touches 
That's how I'm going to put it. I think it touches these areas, but it never enters it for complete. For sure it touches. As you mentioned, it has a creativity element in common. But when you said that it was playing with emotions, and when I said emotions, I didn't mean the emotions of others. Because for me, in my traditional training, as someone who studied literature and someone who devoted some time to thinking about this, for me, an art is just an expression of the ideas and the emotions of the author. So it's not necessarily about triggering emotions in the others as triggering the ego, but more manifesting your own emotions in an art form, for instance, using classical art forms. I'm sad and I can express that sadness in a song, in a poem, in a movie. Yeah. We'll uh, make others sad, maybe, but I don't think that in climbing you actually see the emotion of the author in there. But this is not to say that's not. Uh, this is just to say that, in my opinion, I think it's a bit of a stretch to call it an art form in itself. Although nowadays everything can be whatever. But for sure, it has elements of creativity. And creativity happens in many sectors of life. Climbing is certainly one of them. And creativity also happens in art, obviously. Yeah. So for sure, it has elements in common. Yeah, like I said, I don't, I don't consider it as an artist. That's a very long debate. I think it's in the industry, it's kind of said that root setting is not art, even if some people try to push it and are also exploring on how much of an art can it be and they do really just aesthetic lines and stuff there is amazing stuff out there that some people are are exploring and doing but that's not let's say that's not a priority also you know so when we are setting that's not the main focus that we need to do something that it's a piece of art that that comes as a bonus element, let's say that the artistic side of it, it's, it's like a bonus element that first of all, you need, you, you need to, like, again, you need to create a puzzle. You need to create something that it's complex. It's, yeah. it, the, the, we, we could be talking hours about it and that's just yeah. not getting anywhere. But I don't know why, but when you mentioned this, like people who do beautiful aesthetic lines, somehow it came to mind the idea of gourmet food. That for me, gourmet food is not really on point in the sense that it's not designed to maximize your satisfaction or actually it's not designed to maximize your fulfillment, physical fulfillment while eating a dish. It's just a very good flavor in a very aesthetical, pleasing form. Just an experience. Yeah, and these guys that you were doing, it felt like you have a nice experience, but the athlete is not really the focus, as in the stomach is not really yeah, the focus. Well, just... I agree, I agree. The... Yeah. yeah, I agree it goes um, there, in a way. Just before we go into competition again, okay. and I just wanted to ask you this as a personal note also, and it's in a way related to what we're talking previous, previously about an artist or an author who tears down his own work. And I've always found it odd, odd to me because I take note of everything. I have a very bad memory, but I've never seen you 
take a picture of a route or even recreate a route that you've done before. Is this intentional, that you never repeat what you have done before? Repeat in the exactly the same way. Uh, yeah, it's intentional, yeah. I mean, it kind of, uh, it's emotionally, it's kind of complex because I will be really disappointed to myself if I'm setting something again, because where I like to be is creative. So I, the, I think the day that I will feel that I'm doing over and over again, the same thing, I'll probably get bored and just try to do something else. I would not say necessarily over and over, but let's say last year I made a really good a really good route or problem, yeah. a really good problem that I'm really proud of. It will be fun to try this again to see where we're at. No, that's year. not, that's, I mean, that's not how I see it. I see it for sure. There are some boulders that we remember, but what I try to understand is like, why was this so special? You know? what made it different from the others and then try to use these elements and explore them to create something great again <laughs> make boulder great again <laughs> yeah let's make boulder great again but a new one you know so everything needs to evolve it's uh, we, we have the same cycle on root setting that we have on life. That's, it's kind of pointless to try to perpetuate something. It just needs to keep evolving and evolving. Sometimes it will evolve for something worse, but hopefully on the longer run, it will evolve for something better. That's, That's very interesting approach. It also, again, has a more, um, how to say, a more expanding notion that we should not try to relive the same moment or the same experience, but instead draw on the things that we learned and try to recreate the path forward yeah. in a new way. That I guess applies to everything. Yeah, agree. And then, but again, back to the problem, you don't want to, again, when, why was that problem great? What, because that's totally subjective just from the start what what is a great boulder for me it can be the really stale for you like really boring or and will i have the same experience today on that problem that i set it two years ago and we know that's also not true because when you go climbing on the rock that doesn't change or that barely changes let's say and we know that we don't have the same thrill and the same emotion like when you climb it for the first time or when you climb it that it was a really big uh, win for you, let's say. And for sure, there are some routes that we like to do over and over and over again. So what I try to understand is what are the elements that give me these feelings? And then I try to recreate it on new stuff instead of just try to keep. Otherwise, I will just wash them and put them back on the wall, you know, like Hall of Fame. <laughs> it's actually yeah, yeah. funny because I, I once kind of think, no, maybe it will be interesting, like these, let's say, five-star problems that everybody finds that are, let's say, better than the generality of, of the others. 
maybe it will be interesting to just like take pictures, uh, film them, like so in 10 years or in 20 years or I can replicate them like in the Hall of Fame. And that can be an exercise that probably I would appreciate like when you have the enough distance and like, okay, let's do this again. Yeah. It's like go and watch uh, your favorite movie from when you were a kid or, you know, like it, it brings you back to your childhood or when you were a teenager and there are some feelings there that it can be an interesting experience, but it will be just that, you know, it's like it's a special day, a special, but I didn't even progress with, with that idea yet. So I'm not sure if, because again, it's, it's evolving all the time. Also, the tools that we have are evolving all the time. Also, the athletes we are setting are evolving all the time. The level just keeps rising and rising and rising. So a really challenging and good problem today, it can be probably a medium or a very poor problem tomorrow. So just go, just keep going. <laughs> I'm still glad that I asked you and that I learned your answer. Since I understand what you mean and I admire what you mean which is a, a bit hard for me to understand in a way, because by profession, I'm an archivist and an archivist, the job means taking care of old things or taking care of the information that is stored. So for me, the natural mindset will be, yeah, I'm going to take a picture, story, <laughs> <laughs> recreate it. Well, so th that's also why it's good to have teams, you know, because different people bring different perspectives, different philosophies, different methodologies. And for instance, if I had someone in the team that has this archive mindset, probably from time to time, maybe this idea will be interesting. You know, you, there is a lot of creative stuff that you can do after like, uh, okay, let's pick the top 10 and people will climb and will vote which the best, uh, what's the favorite? I mean, the best, it's kind of also very, yeah, subjective subjective sure. yeah like there is some root setting competitions i don't know if if you ever heard about it and it it's also plays with this it's really interesting that you go there and you try to set your best problem what's your best problem for who <laughs> for who, for who? What, what, what you know time, like yeah. it's my best problem what i like to climb the most is my best problem what the others like to climb the most is my best problem really hard? Is my best problem really easy and everybody can climb it? I didn't so, know about that. That's interesting. <laughs> but okay. so, yeah, what actually happens is that they do this kind of competition. That each setter sets one, two, three problems, and then people vote for the problems they like the most. And this is the best route setting. That sounds a bit boring, to uh, be honest. I mean, it's an interesting exercise, and I think it's. This kind of uh, ideas keeps pushing the industry forward because then the road settings will be learning from each other. I mean, there is a lot of stuff to learn when you see others setting, how they set, how they work, and, and also the feedback on what do the public value the most. Again, why was this problem the most value? Even maybe probably this will happen that the road setters will think this is the best problem, but then the audience thinks this is the best problem. So these are all concepts that it's interesting to explore and learn from. 
but I, I don't see it like going anywhere further than that. Just, um, I was wondering, in terms of route sending in competitions, I feel it's a bit tricky because when you're in a competition, you like, let's say a World Cup or European Cup, there is a specific level of difficulty that you must meet because you need to address some problems for world-class athletes. Mm -hmm. And I suppose that the organization has some guidelines on how to yeah, route there set. There are guidelines with levels and you have a route setter chief that is there to enforce that okay. guidelines. But at the same time, route setting is a creative process and each, has its, each person has its own style. So in a competition context, how can you manage your individual approach to the official requirements? Again, it's, I think it works the same way that I told you before, that I have this idea and I can set this idea for you or I can set it for the kids. I just need to play with the sizes and the holds and see if it's working. I think the same happens in the, in the competitions where you are setting for a very high level. You still have this idea of moves that you want to promote and you want to be the better, but you'll be setting for their size and you'll probably be setting with really hard holds that probably most of us won't even be able to use, but they're so strong that they can. And it goes a little bit on that way, I think. Yeah. Also, you need to understand that even for us can be a very abstract image, but for them, they are used to set for these athletes. So they have a very clear image on, on what these set athletes are able to do and they are not able to do. For instance, for me, I'm very comfortable setting for most of my athletes. And when I do, I have a huge confidence, like the, the size is correct, the strength is correct. And it was funny because I had these many examples over, over the time that I'm setting, for instance, with Mata, which is helping me most of the time. And it, we're set, okay, who are we setting for? We're setting for this kid, 10 years old. And he said, oh, it's too far. And I look, no, it's perfect. And he said, okay. And then we see it and it's perfect. So I have, I have this huge confidence because I see them climbing so many hours per week that I already have uh, this visual memory of what the reach is. It's something innate. I don't, I mean, I have no idea on exactly how much it is, but when I set, it just feels right, you know? And I think f uh, there is a lot of this innate perspective on the root setting. And as they are setting for them and they know them from competitions, most of them will set uh, 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 for the national teams to practice. So they spend a lot of time with these athletes, they know each other and they, they know how far they can push and how far they can go with it. So. so you just know based on your experience, large experience observing the athletes. Yeah. And these guys that root set in the world stages, do they exclusively root set as a pros or stay with the athletes all the time? Uh, I'm not really sure. I think many of them, they have uh, hold companies, so they're also developing that side and trying to come up with uh, new stuff. I know that others have also their own gyms and they set for the gyms, but also on these gyms, when they have these really good root setters, all the good athletes 
tend to go to these gyms so they also can try and practice their root setting for these kind of uh, audience there um so they are always connected in a way i think yeah so they are just familiar with the really high class athletes yeah, yeah. and they the same way that you have an intuition to the people that go to your gym they might have an intuition to the world's world-class athletes exactly do you ever aspire to root set in such a big stage a world i mean i'm in the pool for the paraclimbing root setters like 11 people in the world that are in this pool and then they can be called anytime to be setting uh, so there is this kind of hope although paraclimbing doesn't compare to the normal climbing in level of how hard you need to set on the other side these athletes are monsters and they climb really really hard even if it's paraclimbing uh, most of them probably climb harder than me um, so that will be a huge challenge for me i had this experience that i would love for sure but uh, we will see we will see how it goes Uh, I'm in the pool for two years now, I think, or three. But then we had the corona, a lot of competitions were cancelled. I'm not getting younger, so <laughs> <laughs> lots of new people coming to the business. We'll see how it goes, but I would like it. Yeah. It will be a huge experience. Paraclimbing, I don't know if this word is so familiar for everyone, but what we would say in Portuguese is escalada adaptada, yeah. which basically means if someone is somehow physically impaired, it's paraclimbing. Yep. Is it the limitations are just physical or also mental? No. Um, there are mental impairments in other sports, as you know, but not on climbing. They, they don't have categories, at least for now, for that. So it's just physical impairment. But um, not all the physical impairment is considered um, a category, let's say, for paraclimbing. So there are very specific areas. Um, Just for the audience to understand, I can go like really not on topic, but visual impairment. Uh, it can either be total blindness or just like a really low vision. Uh, amputations or not being able to move uh, the members. Any member or one member? Uh, the, both members normally. That There are some categories where they have the legs, but they cannot move them. So they just go with their arms? Yeah, just the upper body strength. No, I understand the monsters just yeah. climbing with your arms. It must be some beasts. Uh, and then we have some category, which are the RP, that people have the full members, let's say, but they don't have the same strengths on the members, coordination. Uh, normally this comes from injuries that people got over the time and it's the hardest and the more complex to understand even to classify because it's also very individual like one injury is not the same injury yeah because it's a degree like and, and it's not clear for instance i i know that they have a battery of tests for this to understand where the athlete will fit on each category and this takes long and from our experience with with tanya for example when we entered the classification for her she's an amputee on the leg so she just shows the leg and it's like okay you can go i mean yeah. there's no question if you don't have a leg yeah, it's obvious it's yeah. there's no debate so it is what it is 
it's the same for blinds. Uh, blind people don't see it all, so it's this category. But when you enter the low vision, you, you start putting percentage on people and 1% can be the difference this category or the other category. And then it kind of gets also a little bit on the air if it's the right or wrong category. Yeah, so. It feels more like a spectrum rather than an obvious. Yeah, I mean, they. I think if I'm not mistaken, it's from 1% to 5%. And then from six to 15. I mean, but deciding if you are five or six can be tricky. It's, it's, it's kind of the same happening on the, on the RP categories. Do the arm amputees compete against the leg amputees or is it two classes? I've always wondered this. Uh, well, that actually happened now on the World Cup uh, because there was only three amputees on this competition. I'm talking about the woman, which was the case where we have the athlete. So they merged the category with the RPs where they have uh, all the all the limbs. So in the end, they co compete on the like say general ranking. Mm -hmm. um, and then I think they punctuate for the um, their own ranking. So if you don't have, the, the, there's actually a really complex diagram that you don't, if you don't have enough people on this category, they will merge it to the next category and then, and so on until you have enough people. Oh, I see. So it's the worst case scenario kind of plan that if yeah. there is not enough athletes, we will find a way to- Yeah, it. it's to, everybody climbing in the same way. seems so, quite know. harsh for the root setters because I imagine that root setting for someone with one arm is entirely different of root setting for someone with one leg. Yeah, it's complex, but they have figured out some ways of what categories work uh, with other categories and what don't. So, for instance, the RP that have a weakness on the legs are competing with the people that don't have one of the legs. Uh, but they are not competing with a person that doesn't have one arm, let's say, because that's a total different root setting. For instance, uh, because each impairment puts total different challenges on the athlete and also on the root setter. And some are com you can merge and some you can't. So in this case, it will never happen that a guy with one leg will compete directly for a guy with one arm. No. Oh, not that merge. kind of merge. No, no. I was wondering. It and they don't. And they this. don't merge gender also. So a woman will never m compete with a man or vice versa. Uh, in terms of paraclimbing, the best example we know is Tanya Shavs. Tanya Shavs is the athlete that at least in Seb competes. She, as you mentioned, she lost one leg, mm -hmm. but she turned it around and she's really committed into climbing. And as far as I know. She's the only Portuguese representative that she even competed last week or this week yeah, in the World this Cup. Tuesday, yeah. Yeah. And um, I've noticed that when you talk about her, it feels like you are really, really proud about her, which is obviously because she's the one of the only Portuguese competitors in the world stage, but also because she's at your athlete. And it seems as if she's your project, your champion, and a way like your dream to fight the inertia of competitiveness that there is, there is in this country, in Portugal. As we know, she's very 
barely, just to say nothing, supported by the, the Federation. She has to take her own vacations, she has to pay her own trips, so... Yeah, there is no legal support for the athletes. Um, well, you need to understand, uh, Tanya is like the face of my baby, which is my project was the paraclimbing. So um, I started paraclimbing way before I met um, Tanya. It was 2014. And she says, well, I start working with uh, people that are impaired mentally or physically. And we start organizing national competitions. Uh, and at some point, a friend of mine that was came to climb said oh i have a girl she's really motivated to sport she told me something about climbing and i said oh bring her and when she came we we connected and it's like oh you have potential and i told her if you take this seriously um how did no i said i said to her i'm going to be the first coach on the world cup to take a para climbing athlete if you take this seriously you will be the first athlete and and then so it was i mean it can sound as a brave statement but at the same point nobody was doing it and still nobody is doing it so it kind of it falls in the natural sequence of things and yeah, she's giving the face to to the project, and it's it's a very personal project. I I did a lot of volunteer during the years around that, and still do. But also, it gives a lot back and a lot of it's life teaching yeah. around it. So yeah, and about Tanya, it's. That, then it's the other part. Then it's the athlete itself is really strong. Uh, she's reaching a level that she can engrave her name in, in the history of the sport and the country. I mean, not only being the first, but probably it will be the first medals. It will be the you know the first Olympics. First, there is a huge path for her to go and where she can make a brilliant. Uh, history and statement I think she did get a medal Wasn't well it, it's a complex because we're talking about the merge she's the third in their category but when they merge they give the medals on the overall ranking so the girls with two legs were getting the medals uh, so her category was not She's on AL2, which is the amputees. Right. But because there was not, I think they need six athletes to, to have finals. Uh, because there was not athletes, they merged with the RP, which is these people that have all the limbs, but not the same strengths on all the limbs. And so they all got merged. And then she didn't make it to the finals on that overall category. Oh, even if she's the third on their category. It's quite unfair. Fair, in a well, way. Well, yeah, I, I agree, but they're struggling with uh, having too many categories and few uh, participants, let's say. Because from her perspective, she could not have done anything better. There was just no other athletes available to fill the other categories. I mean, uh, it's it's unfair. <laughs> I will just keep it <laughs> that way. Yeah. No, it's not surprising because when you were mentioning so many different categories, I was wondering 
how do they actually fill all these categories or where do they find all these people and it's so many variables yeah so yeah. it's not surprising um anyway i believe you mentioned that the paraclimbing work you do is volunteering mm -hmm. really mm -hmm. how come you not get paid for this how come someone can expect you to dedicate all your hours voluntarily as with no financially drawback uh, well it's uh I mean, we we had some athletes like Tanya that they come and they train with the others, so, and that's an inclusive um, training. It's paid like the others, but the segregated trained training we did with uh, uh, mental impairment uh, people. Uh, that's that was always a volunteer project. How come the federation does not support anything? Are uh, if we go to the federation then we need three more podcasts just about uh. that but uh, our federation is not supported by the state so there are no funds there are no funds supported by the state there are no funds to support any project otherwise it will be supported same way that uh, Tanya is not supported to go outside so it's, uh, it's a legal issue that has 20 years many stories I don't think it's going to be interesting <laughs> to be speaking yeah, about that not, not right because, now. So yeah, we're going to politics. Yeah, yeah. It's, 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 no, but the, I mean, I have no problem talking about it. But if we're going to talk about it, then we'll need a lot of time because it's a really complex and long story. So I okay. think it's just better to yeah. Let's just keep it. I just going. wanted to I to mention it because. I knew that Tanya was competing from her own pocket in the mm -hmm. sense and the Federation it has some issues and there is no agreement and blah blah blah. But I didn't know that the work you were doing was also volunteering. Mm -hmm. And I'm impressed. Well all the club I mean it we we I mean these this project uh, although we do it by volunteer gave us some support from the municipality, gave us visibility. We kind of uh, applied projects with other NGOs that are working with the kids and we got some support from that side also. So it was not 100% uh, not supported, let's say, but on my personal level, I never took uh, a cent from, from that. It, it's everything, it's, it's unpaid. Yeah, I feel that is a sad thing and I would like to see that change because I believe that people who are unique in the sense that they provide a unique contribution to society, they should be rewarded financially and we should not expect them just to commit their time just because. Yeah. But well, I get what you say. Uh, I'm okay with doing some volunteers. I mean, that's an example I, I learned from my mom and that's something that uh, I I want to honor, let's say, that heritage. So I'm very comfortable with that side. But on the other side, as the project keeps growing and growing and growing, also the expectations and the pressure keeps going and it gets to a point where you say, I mean, as a volunteer, this is as, as far as I can go. Then if you want to grow this in a more serious way, we probably will need a bigger team and people will need to get paid. So there is this balance. I, I'm okay with doing some volunteer but I'm not okay of, I mean, we all have bills to pay and of course, so, yeah. I hope you can get some money from it in the future. But again, not to go into the political side of the conversation, 
let's go back to the paraclimbing and the point of fairness. One thing that I wanted to also mention is whether paraclimbing can even be fair to begin with, or even if it should be fair. Because one argument that can be made is that the point is not to provide a competitive environment for the athletes, so not to actually replicate a fair environment for a competition, but given their personal history and given their accident and the story of the accidents they suffered to be in the paraclimbing, could it be seen as a means for them to overcome their own physical limitations and to become the better, better versions of themselves just to give them a reason to get up in the morning and say I'm not gonna well, cry about my injury I'm gonna I get the point but I don't agree with the point I'll try to explain why I think the point it's to give them competition and that's the fair part I've, I mean if you want to give them equal opportunities Having a proper competition is part of having these equal opportunities. That's why. And that's why they have uh, all these categories. Otherwise, you just do a mixed event and people come and are invited. It's a more shield. There are some stuff like this. We also do something similar with that here in Portugal. So nothing wrong with it. But when we're talking about World Cups or Championships, we're talking about these athletes having a fair opportunity to compete because some, some people are really passionate and they are really motivated to, to compete. So it's only fair that they have the, the chance to do it in a fair way. That being said, we're talking about paraclimbing, which, like I said, the Americans call adapt climbing which we use kind of the same meaning translation in Portugal with escalada adaptada. And when we talk about adapted sport, we need to adapt. So even though we will try to give these people a fair chance to have a fair competition, we know that it will never be 100% fair. But if you think about also about the non-adapt competitions, this also happens. I mean, some people are higher, some people are slimmer or whatever. So not everybody is the same and we need to be on board with that. But uh, I mean, it doesn't make any sense. Some of the merges on my perspective are not are not fair, especially taking in consideration that these categories were already addressed. They are already designed by the proper federation. So then I have mixed feelings of how some of the merges at least are done. With that said, it's better to have a bad competition than not having any competition. So. I also think they're trying to do their best and it's a, it's a long way. I think some of the decisions are not the best and not defending the best interesting for the even the federation and the athletes. But, well, I mean, it's a learning progress for everybody. So yeah, we'll see how it goes. Because it's relatively a new sport also. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I imagine there's a lot of room to grow and to expand and just yeah, to experiment. There's there just been some immense to the rules this year and I think they will learn also from that and they will keep changing it. So it's, it's evolving, it's yeah. not static. I can tell that by experience also, because when I joined the SEP, the, your climbing club, I believe it was nearly two years ago now. And I remember that one of the things that you told us when we joined is some rules, like three seconds on the top, you can't use the bolt holes, you can't use the walls that don't have the, the holes on them. You need to, in a competition setting, you can only do five attempts mm -hmm. before you are disqualified or before you have to move on. And it's curious because the other day I was watching some female World Cup competition and everything was upside down. Like the, they could use the bolts, they could use the walls without the holds. They just went to the top, hanged one second, slept on it, say, I got this. They had four minutes to try. And so it was not a five attempts. So this is just to say that what you told me and I was expecting to see in the competition, it was completely different in okay. terms of rules. And that's fair. I'm not saying it's on you, but I believe that... No, I can explain you all, all yeah. the stuff. I believe that it is just a reflection of how experimental the sport is being and how experimental the competition... Uh, no, moves. it's actually that part is just being a little bit lazy because what, what, these rules point you to the competition format that we try to teach there. So even if you don't want to compete, you will be doing the sport there inside our gym with the competition rules, let's say, or guidelines at least. Uh, it's like you, you're going to play football with your friends, you cannot use your hands to play football. Okay, it, it's, a, it's a rule. Uh, of course, if you are with your friends and you agree that you can use the hand in the ball, then it's up to you. But normally football, only the goalkeeper will be able to use the hands and only in a specific area of the field. So all the rules that we said uh, are what happens on the, um, on the competitions, but with a lazy component. Why? And especially because we have a very limited space. If I don't want to use you, if I don't want you to use the wall, I can put as a root setter tape in the areas that will limit. But again, for me, that will be limiting also the boulder next on the other side. And then I need to tell to the person climbing the other boulder, oh, but for you, you can use the wall here. It's just, this tape is just, so it doesn't make much sense for us in the space management issue. Also the bolts, uh, there are some rules about which bolts you can use and you cannot use. It's hard to explain when you're just a beginner. And most of the time it's a root setter job to just put something on top of the bolts. So you won't be, we even have this, there are some pieces that will block it. But then when we are setting and stripping the problems, it's, it's a really a pain in the ass, let's say, to take this... Uh, hold covers out and then take through. It just adds more time when it's something really used that I can say to you, just don't use it because it's kind of pointless for me to be creating uh, 
a problem, uh, something like interesting for you, and then you just like. Yeah, but I was in terms of bolts and holes. I was not actually mentioning the holes of the holes of the holds, as in when you put a screw. Yeah. But rather the hole on the wall itself. Where it's you can it's totally forbidden for your hands. You can use it with your feet. Oh, on your feet you can. Because yeah, I saw the, these girls using them for the feet. And was no, like, I it's didn't a, know this. No, yeah, yeah. I mean, this girl that you're, the American girl that you're mentioning, after that, I, I learned that she's been doing it for quite a long time. So she's just like practiced to be able to, to use it. It's something that the rules don't address. So just she's just kind of explored a wormhole on the rules and for now it's working i don't know probably i think the reaction because for the root setter and for the competition perspective what i think the feeling is that it's like okay i can say nothing because it's legal but i'm not happy that you're doing it because that's totally not the goal of of the problem and the root setting so I think they will just start coming up, especially on the slabs, uh, because it's where you can have an advantage with that. They will just start putting blank uh, walls with no holes on it, and they will keep the problem apart from it. But this, there's again, when you're, when you're doing these problems, there is also this game of uh, mice and cat, you know? And it's part of the game. She's really smart. She trained herself to explore this uh, wormhole and she's doing great. I mean, as as a coach, if I was her coach, I would be super proud. If I was the root setter on the competition, I would be extremely disappointed. It's part of the game, you know? Uh, It's a beautiful metaphor of the cat and mouse. Like there's a root setter who is trying to force a certain way and then there are the athletes who are trying to break free from that box and exploit everything to their advantage and see how they can perform the best. Also, you were saying the three second rule. Well, that changed two years ago, I think, when they changed the bonus for zones. Uh, they came they came up with the concept of uh, controlling a hold. So you go there and you seem like you're not struggling. They just you don't need to, to be you. yeah, but so you, you don't need to be there for X amount of time like you had to be before, but you need to show that you are in control, uh, which is more abstract concept. Yeah, it feels like so, especially because we have a lot of kids and we want to set a good example for them. We don't want this kind of mistake happening that you climbed a route on a competition and you just came from the top too early because you didn't wait for the sign of the judge so we just push them to be there the three seconds even if it's not necessary we're just trying to avoid mistakes on a competition environment then it's totally up to you as you know because again it's an ego issue it's, even if we say this it's totally up to you if you want to use, be three seconds there or one second there some people don't really follow that rule and we sorry and we don't push that rule on everybody. But I mean, if you are struggling in some uh, boulder and then you come to the top and the top is something you can be comfortable in. Personally, I would prefer to stay there the three seconds and say, yeah, I got this, no problem. 
rather than just come down one second early or two seconds early because if you're comfortable you can spare those two seconds yeah. to be there and say yeah it's really okay well i'm going to give you my perspective as an athlete then because i'm i'm i never climbed to compete so but i i again i follow the same philosophy so I'm, if i'm uh, in a really comfortable top i'm okay with just being there one second or wherever because there's no challenge there for me and so I don't really care about the top anymore. I matched, okay, I come out. But if the top is really challenging me, I will do my best to stay there the three seconds and even more because I want to transport myself to the, this perspective that if I had to stay here the three seconds, would I be able to? And then I need to push myself and I want to push myself to be there the three seconds. But I don't want to cheat on myself I know some people like to uh, I, I think I'm, I'm really strict with myself especially on that kind of stuff so again it's just practice it's just having fun but if it's a challenge the three seconds I want to have that challenge if it's not a challenge then you do whatever you please because it doesn't really matter I, I used to say a lot to, to my athletes that I don't care if you get to the top as a coach. I totally don't care. Like I said, you know, we put this guy, I want you to be doing the stuff correctly, you know, like in the proper way, I want you to be being smart, exploring proper technique. And then the rest, it, it, it will be a consequence on the long run. So I don't care about this specific top. I care that everything else is being done properly. Then the outcome will be good in most of the time. It's also the message of focus on the journey, not on the goal. Just totally, totally, yeah, I know, totally. Which is also, again, a message that applies to many things in life. And also to, not only to sport, but to academic training, to socializing, just focus on what's around you and enjoy the moment. And Th that's trust, actually life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> trust the process. <laughs> And you'll get to the good way. Yeah, yeah, and trust the process, exactly. But still, it's fascinating that the sport is innovating so much, that the rules are changing in one, two years, that now we see that it's going to, for the first time, be incorporated into the Olympics, which will certainly bring more attention, and with more attention, also more exploitation by the athletes, which will eventually lead to new rules or new adaptation yeah. to say, okay, this doesn't work. New let's... formats. Yeah, let's... They will change it for sure. Sorry, they already changed some part of the format. And I mean, I think the sport climbing is quite a new sport. And we know that if you want to get to a very professional level, uh, it needs to be profitable. So I think there are still learning on how to market and monetize the sports and you know the events themselves and that, i predicted the, the rules all the format how the competitions happen uh, maybe in 10 years 15 years we'll be looking back to the competitions nowadays and we'll be laughing because i think they will be dramatically different from what they are now uh, for sure, it's like there's no way that is going to remain the same. No. And actually, it's, I think it's quite bad and amateur format. So it's a good example, I think, is chess. 
because chess is so old traditionally it's the the sport i don't know if i should call it the sport or a game but it exists for so long and what is interesting for me is that chess during its existence and during its evolution has hit many roadblocks so the people that are involved in the chess community from time to time they have to create new rules to make chess appealing i think it even happened recently like the pro matches they're always ending in a draw because the people just knew the game they knew okay how to try to win and they knew that if they could not win if they made a certain they can move block or mistake, the game for the other they just knew how to block the game and yeah. it was so boring to watch because you knew it, it was either one makes a really big mistake or it draws so it becomes quite predictable and you don't do big mistakes at that level so yeah they are yeah, really really yeah. and uh, i was wondering if climbing the same way that chess finds new rules from time to time to keep the game fresh do you feel that climbing might need to invent itself and we see some mechanism like the mobile holds no I, the... i don't see it on that way i mean i think what's happening on the sports it's already spectacular let's say it's the format and the, the way the competitions are organized, the way they happen, the way they are even filmed, uh, that is really an amateur way. Like if you watch the stream, it's too long. The, they're not capturing, I mean, you can tell that people that are filming, they don't really understand what's going on. So they don't know what to focus and Uh, only one person climbing at the time, lots of time that no action at all because the athlete is resting, in sinking. So they need to change the format in a way that anyone that doesn't climb can look at it and see a show, you know, something like a thrill, like the same way that uh, we watch hundreds of sports that we don't probably ever practice or just and we still like to watch them because they have this show component so when you mean about changes in format it's more about changes in the organizational side yeah. of the event but not into the actual climbing itself no i mean climbing itself it's evolving because It changed dramatically in the last 15 years with introduction of volumes, the new holds, very huge holds. Now we have these dual texture holds. Uh, but all of these, they tend to help the root setters uh, enforce some kind of movement. So we, we want to make sure that this will be the way of climbing properly and getting to the top. Uh, With that said, I think the, there will be probably some evolution on that side. So it will keep going forward on that side of new holds, new challenges on, on that. But I think what is right now making climbing as hard to sell is that it's totally impossible to have it, for example, on TV. That, that the the great struggle that there was when climbing was uh, in the Olympics was that the Olympic board they just wanted speed climbing 
not the traditional they time. didn't want due to the time it takes yeah. or I speak climbing is 10 seconds like you start filming no it's it's 5.2 five, five five seconds. seconds now you start for, filming for the male rec- you forget to press the record and it's gone. For, first of all <laughs> it's the fastest sport in the olympics right now speed climbing also for them that's really good because then you have timetables you know okay at 10 there will be this at 10.5 we have the speed climbing at 10.20 i will be giving the medals for climbing you know so in the logistics side it's it's it gets really predictable on what is going on and how and when how long it takes how long we need and with the normal climbing for for example the routes they have an x amount of time i'm not sure how how long it is but you don't know if the athlete is going to fall in the first hold and just be there for five seconds or it's going to be there for 10 minutes, let's say. And this multiplied for X athletes that gives you a, a range of time that then either you don't have anything to show or you don't have time enough to show everything. Right. You know, it's they need to change. The, they came up with a combination of disciplines. Uh, there was a solution, but for Paris, there will be a different already. There, it will be speed on one discipline, and then uh, Boulder and lead. It will be the combined discipline, the other. So, like two medals for for climbing on Paris, one medal for climbing on right. on Tokyo. But there are formats like the Adidas Superstar and stuff like that uh, that are way more appealing, especially, I think, for people that have no connection with the sport. I mean, if you watch just the finals right now of a Boulder uh, competition, world competition, we're talking normally roughly between three hours and a half to four hours. And if you just time the the amount of time that they are climbing is probably under one hour for sure so there's a lot of filler time just evil just feeling yeah you know that he's putting shock he's sinking he falls he asks for a brush i mean if you are really engaged in sport you are used to it and you're not really paying attention to it anymore. But if you are not, then it, at some point it's just like, it's too much time, nothing going on. Then this athlete goes out, then another comes in, waits for the clock to start again. So it, it takes a lot of time and it's, they need to think of either putting some time element on it or having more people climbing same boulders at the same time with more cameras that I mean, does make sense from a tv direction perspective because it's something you don't really think about normally or just you're just a viewer you just assume that the content will be there but you're not doing the schedule not doing the program and having unpredictable timelines can really mess up how you plan for it i'll give you an example for with football for instance some finals you have the 90 minutes then you have three plus whatever extra time and normally that's it but you have a, when you have a final then if they are tied you need to add well it's 30 minutes playing plus the breaks 40 more minutes for it but then if they're still tied then you have the penalties 
and the, the penalties can last forever. <laughs> and the penalties can last <laughs> virtually forever. So yeah. if you have, for instance, uh, the news coming after and you want to do a live with uh, some politician or whatever, then you're screwed because you cannot plan it. And we're just talking about one game and one sport. When you have the Olympics and you have so many stuff happening at the same time and you have the ceremonies for medals or and you you know that you're doing this sport at 10, you're doing this sport at 10, 15, you're doing this. So you, you need to be able to predict a lot of what's going on. So it's, there are a lot of pressure also on the organization for it. So I try to understand both sides. Uh, I think climbing totally has its place on the Olympics. But I think they will need to refurbish all the formats for a more appealing and more understandable and fastest format. That makes sense and it seems likely because as we've been saying, it's quite young and mm -hmm. they are still experimenting. In terms of changes that I could think of, at least from the experience of watching the women competition, the World Cup, they had, I believe it was three or four boulders. Yeah. And then they went one at a time, yeah. one athlete at a time, one boulder at a time. Yeah. So the first boulder. Six athletes. So. Six athletes. So yeah. each athlete in succession, they don't see each other. Exactly. It's just, so that's also intentional, I assume. Yeah. By design. It's called on site. So you only, you only see the problem when you're going to climb and then you cannot see anybody climbing because that can give uh, precious better information so although they do know some information from the crowd cheers like yeah yeah and they and they actually is not totally on site because uh, they have some visualization uh, time so they visit each problem they can only touch the start holds but I mean, they get a picture of, and they are experienced enough to understand what what's what's the challenge at least. But I mean, the on the Adidas uh, model for I don't think it's perfect, but it's just a different concept. You have two athletes doing the exactly same problem side by side at the same time. So that means duplicating the yeah. boulders. Yeah. Okay. That's what I wanted to get because it means additional effort by the root setters and the organization to uh, double the space. Well, not exactly because they already have that space because they said one man, one woman, one man, one woman, and so on. So for instance, if you do men one day or one moment and then woman other moment, you can just with the same size, uh, doing the same. But you cannot do it with the same walls because right now the walls, they are not symmetric. Right. And you need symmetric walls for that, for example. So it, that's one thing that automatically needs to change. You need to have a, to, to create new walls just for that format. But like, I'm not saying that's the perfect format, it's just an idea. Uh, about the time it's easier to manage and having two athletes competing at the same time even if one falls the other is not a wall and you can film it but there's still some action for the viewer you know right but and also you have this thrill of comparing two athletes at the same time you know it's it, 
for the point of the viewer, I think it's more interesting. Doesn't that undermine the fact that people or the organization does not want the athletes to look at each other and to learn from each That's other? That's why they put time. So on the Adidas model, the fastest to get on the top uh, wins. Whoa, that's harsh. That's a yeah. another layer of That's another layer, yeah. I mean, for sure, whatever the format is, time will need to be a component because that's what we're talking about that needs to be managed and addressed. But one thing is, okay, I have four minutes to get to the top. Other thing is, there is this person next to me that is also trying the same thing and can cut my four minutes. So it's not about four minutes. No, it can be 20 seconds. Yeah, it's not about the time that you have left. It's about the time that you already spent. Mm -hmm. Well, that seems very harsh. Yeah. A lot of pressure to manage. Well, like I said, it's going to be a different format, kind of a different sport. But I, with the format that we're seeing right now, I mean, we're trying to solve the problem of federation right now, but you can have it on a square where they are climbing the same problem. So you have the same plunge. Uh, uh, like uh, inclinations? No, uh, for, I mean for the viewers. like It's like they are climbing side by side, but they can be on the opposite um, oh, sides. Okay. Okay. And then you don't need to put the time of who's who gets there first and you can kind of have a bigger chance of always have somebody climbing and not just like staring at the wall and putting because in this case they will be back to back and not watching each other yeah for example but what if they just fall and they look behind and they see oh this guy is doing this better this way no because they won't because i'm talking you you see a square or oh, a division in the middle yeah, a physical division in the middle. So if you, one is climbing here and the other is climbing here, so oh. the backs are there and the backs are there, so they don't never see each other. So the walls are back to back. Yeah. Oh, that's quite interesting. But for the viewer, when you put it on the TV, they are side by side. That's very interesting. So they don't. Of course, for the perspective, if you're doing is in an arena or something like then you're only able to watch one of them. Yeah. You're always missing out on the other. But for the, you, then you, you can have like these uh, big TVs uh, to... It doesn't feel to be a problem. Just you are watching one. And as you said, you have the big television showing the other one. The other one on the other side. Should be doable. I don't see I that to be yeah. a deal breaker. I mean, I'm quite sure that they will be on board with people that are used to work on televisions and they will come up with some format that works and it's better. But right now it's it's too long to be commercially appealing to TVs. And why I'm saying that? Because I, I, f I have the feeling that climbing needs to be able to enter the TVs to get to the next step of being a very popular sport and, I mean, to evolve to other level let's say to tvs the same way that football is showing on weekends on tv or football I mean, kind of all, yeah kind of all uh, football is like in a totally different league but all the other sports are are on tv like i mean the winter sports the snooker i mean you you turn out like eurosport for example and there is like pretty much all the sports there but it will be pretty much impossible right now unless it's speed climbing to watch something 
of uh, this format on Eurosport because they are not going to give you four hours with a one hour action, let's say, and then the rest is just like waiting. So from what I understand right now, you can't watch climbing in TV. No. Just in streams, yeah, YouTube? Yeah, just streams on the YouTube. Um, that sounds weird. That's why I'm telling you, I think it's still a very amateur format. and I, I'm pretty sure that the Olympics will, will put pressure on speeding up the model to something more. Yeah, it is to ex be expected that the marketing will come into the game and then the companies that are involved, they want to further expand their advertisement and their assets. Yeah, or at least some rules. I mean, the same happened on basket that they they were just telling and then they gave him time. You have X seconds to try to score. Otherwise, you lose ball possession, something okay. like that. So that's interesting. Um, going a bit more specific. In terms of speed climbing, in terms of the route setting itself, from what I understand, the the route is always the same mm -hmm. no matter the competition it always stays the same so it acts as a sort of benchmark for competitiveness yep. Yep. could in this way it act like a hundred meter sprint where you have the hundred meter sprint and then the rest is just a test of time and uh, yeah, proof it, of the athlete's effort it's exactly that so it, it comes more into the other philosophy of what we normally see for instance, on the sprint. And that's why the big community in climbing was so disappointed, let's say, when the Olympics tried to enforce the speed uh, on the Olympics instead of the other uh, disciplines that from the majority of the climbers, it's what climbing is about. The slower, the road. Yeah, the, the problem lower. solving, the getting there, not in the fastest way, but in the best way. Uh, we also know that if you want to do something really hard in our sport, you can some most of the time you cannot do it like really fast, like almost running. So pushing you to do something really fast will end up in having easier routes. Otherwise, mm -hmm. yeah, of course. So we're already sacrificing on the technicality of the routes and how hard you can push athletes on this side. Uh, so people were a little bit disappointed on it, but again, it's uh, it's it's different uh, mindsets now. They the athletes that never did the speed climbing for the Olympics, they need to practice. Um, and they start doing it and some of them they are doing quite okay of course it's never the same if you only did that for all your life this kind of training on the other side the climbers that do speed climbing and are like really fast insanely fast normally they are average climbers on the other disciplines and they will like average at the world-class level no i mean average probably even in our climbing level is it that specific in terms of muscles you develop? Yeah, because you develop? that's another thing. You're, you're pushing your body into, into a total different direction of what you need when you're climbing the rest. Especially if you're climbing rope, for instance, which is an endure. It's, it's like asking uh, an athlete to do the marathon and then the sprint. You know, it's... Uh, that different. Yeah, yeah. It's, 
or even an tracking in no trail mm-hmm. you know where the field is totally different and you need to pay attention to a lot of elements and then it's just like the sprint where you you don't even need to worry about the the track itself just like do it as fast as possible the straight line so yeah it's more like that i think it's more like on track and then doing trail on the mountain and try to even if you're running it's you have to deal with with a lot of elements all the time it's always new it's never the same so i had i had no idea it was so different because from what i understand as well in the olympics it was incorporated as a free format so the disappointment of the people that felt that slower climbing was not well represented actually worked because in olympics we have the fast climbing the rope right and bouldering yeah is that correct yeah and if they are all so different and if the athletes must compete in the free of them doesn't that exclude kind of the types of score as in if you're very good at fast climbing you're not going to perform so well in yeah. in bouldering or in rope and yeah, vice versa that kind of screws up the speed climbers for a medal you know because these three disciplines already existed before the olympics and when the olympic uh, committee tried to bring climbing on board they just wanted speed because it was the fastest easier yeah. to direct exactly. easier to feel. but with that said is like let's say on football we're just going to have goalkeepers and then you're missing out on the great athletes like Messi, Ronaldo, you know, all the big figures that everybody knows they won't be there because they don't even do that. So but then there was this big discussion the the international federation tried to enforce the other disciplines and they came up they wanted uh, individual medals per discipline per discipline per discipline and they came up with this combined format so there will be one man gold medal for the whole three and one gold woman medal for the whole three but this puts in a big disadvantage the guys that did speed climbing because they have no chance on the rest because they are good in one out of three so they're bad in two Whereas exactly. the other guys, they are good in two out of three. And it's also easier to be good in boulder leading. And then you just practice and you are okay-ish on the speed. Just enough to make it a couple rounds, let's say. And then it's almost impossible for the others to learn all the complexity of movement and stuff in a couple of years that these guys have been developing to be able to deal with the problem of finals of Boulder, for instance, or it's so they are in a big disadvantage. Seems quite unfair. So what is the argument against separating the classes and giving one medal per class? I'm not really sure. I think because it was also on Tokyo, it's an invited uh, sport. Um, I don't have enough English level to, to explain it, but when you are the country that are hosting uh, the Olympics, you can propose the Olympic Committee for sports that will be part of your Olympic Games. So on Japan, they came up with climbing, 
because it's really popular and also they are really good. So they have high expectations of medals there. Baseball, skate, skateboard. And I'm not sure about the other. I think it was something around surf or something like that, but I'm not clear on the fourth. So, but this being there once doesn't mean that you're going to be a sport, an Olympic sport for the rest of this uh, sessions of, of the years. After that, um, climbing was elected a climbing sport on, on Rio when Rio happened to be in Paris for the first time. So actually, officially, as an Olympic sport, it will be only on Paris. So this is kind of just a, a format for the invited uh, sport, let's say. And, and I think that's why they are spreading the medals after that. And we are expecting that uh, climbing will make it to the Paralympics in Los Angeles, which will be happening after Paris. In the same year? Four years after. Which year are we talking about? So Tokyo was 2020. 2020, yeah. So Paris will be 24 and Los Angeles 28. I see. So that's our best case scenario, for instance, for Tanya to have expectations of being in a Paralympics. So in four or... No, in three. In eight. In three years well, or actually in, in seven now. Yeah, in three or in seven years. No, three it won't be. It's already close. So already close. Yeah. So in in Paris it will be only climbing, and we're hoping that on Lodzenzels will be climbing and paraclimbing. Oh, I see. But just still working on it. But that still needs a community to actually press forward and. Mm -hmm make sure that climbing is appealing enough for it to feature in the yeah, next Olympics. Yeah, yeah, I'm figuring out that also that it, they will see how it goes on Paris and then they will work. That just reinforces the need for experimentation and coming with a good organization format to make it appealing and refreshing to watch and desirable to watch. Yeah. Also. We're already talking about Olympics, like the, the third session of the third games of Olympics with climbing. And we didn't have one yet. So. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to look into the future. Yeah, and yeah, to yeah. Have I mean, plans and dreams. I think it's just too much speculation still to have like a a clear picture of what right. this is going to be. Going into innovation in another way, we've been talking about innovation about the format, the organizational side, and I wanted to talk a bit about innovation into the holds themselves because now we are witnessing some new ways of creating the holds. Two examples are the mobile holds. Somehow the holds move. I'm, I've never seen them, but I've had oh. some people mention. Yeah, officially they are not allowed, so you won't see it on, on official competitions. Oh, right. But, but you can make it for the fun of it. What do they consist of? Because I've never seen them, so I'm not really sure how do I even imagine them. Well, it's, uh, I think, an easy example for you. It can be a doorknob. So a, do a doorknob, a handle. If you do pressure in some way, it moves. If you use it in other way, it doesn't move. So as a root setter, you can better enforce the pattern that you want to see. Yeah, and it, it's it's another layer, you know, of it's another element to the puzzle. I mean, this maybe when you get to this hold, you need to move it to the correct position to go forward, for example, or 
it just uh, makes you more unstable because as you're trying to prepare the next move, your hand is moving. You know, it's, so I see lots of benefits for just practice, just for training, because you need to be prepared for stuff going on that you are not expecting and having these situations will help you uh, react at those situations. But as a competition, I think they will never be part of it. They, it, The discussion was already made, they've been excluded. And I don't see also the industry, at least for now, going in that direction. Could it be because it is too uncertain, so it does not create that much predictability? Or? Yeah, maybe. I think it's also, I mean, if they move, the, there is a bigger uh, random factor than if they are stable, I, even for the root setting, even for the athletes. Uh, it's And also, you're just keeping pushing the, the sports out of the roots even further. I mean, there is already a lot of people that are disappointing with all these coordination moves and dynamic moves that uh, in the industry they even say like parkour moves, uh, which I disagree, but there is already this debate and this discussion inside. And when you're even pushing it forward, I think that you will find even more traction against, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> some conservatorism yeah well it's also i mean for me for the personal side it doesn't i mean we do some jokes is some fun but that's not something that i would like to really take serious or like the direction i would like to if you are a commercial gym i can see lots of stuff being fun and playing around with it uh, and mixing elements like with parkour there's outside on the uh, on the other countries it's really common to have uh, climbing gyms with uh, parkour gyms and some elements in between so i see that part but when you go to the disciplines itself to the sport also i, I think if you want to see your sport be taken seriously you cannot be changing the rules and the elements all the time you know otherwise you will never have a, right. a public that really understands what's going on. So you need to try to be clear when people see uh, a cup today and they see next year, they still understand what's going on instead of just, okay, that's totally new. Why are they playing tennis with a basketball now? Or, <laughs> and there is a pool behind the tennis court. You know, it's, you can create a lot of elements, but is there really a point? Yeah, that's a good point. That there need, needs to be over time some basic ground to unify the sport yeah. and to create a reference for the viewers and for the competitors as well. What about the this new kind of hold where you have a wall that moves and then the um, the holds are just set in stone and they have lights and you can illuminate different routes with the same holds and just with the same wall create diverse routes is okay. this something that you feel that has a future or that has an opportunity for training or for competition that, that's a, the training tool that's a great training tool but as a competition I, it will never happen like that I think I don't, I don't I don't even see uh, how it will be uh, implemented. Uh, 
being the light on the holes it's it just uh, some fancy gadget let's say it doesn't add an, any element it just makes it more user-friendly let's say uh, this this kind of walls has been in use for at least two decades now uh, people just fill it with the holes uh, they do the same that you do on a chess board with a kind of coordinates and then I'm climbing and I can give you the coordinate like in a chess game and I say okay I did this 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 and this and you can do the same you could try to do the same okay so it's the same but without the light component to it you just have to manage all the information in your head and somehow yeah, visualize normal, normally uh, normally even if you have the light you also have the coordinates you can see like the numbers and the letters so even if it's all for every can use and of course then the the stiff you you put the wall the the harder it gets but uh, for training it's great i mean especially if you have very few space uh, it's a great way of managing it and having a tool that it can go to everybody and the other plus side is that as these kind of walls are progressing they are getting more and more standard so if you climb on it here let's say on Porto you can expect that tomorrow when you are in Finland and you have the same you will have exactly the same experience great so, so it's a benchmark also. yeah so you can keep your work from the previous session even if you are on the other side of the world doesn't matter because it's a standard tool so you just go there, okay, I have these degrees and these were the problem I was working it and you keep your session. So there is this plus, but on the other side, you miss out on other stuff. So like the, if you are in another gym, different walls, different route setting, different hole. So, uh, right. so it's, it's a tool. It's a tool. The problem with standardization, there's the good thing because as you mentioned, you maintain the same pattern or the same standard of quality but at the same time you lose some space for individual creativity yeah i mean it's great for the guys that sell these uh, walls yeah. <laughs> for sure they <laughs> their job is done and then yeah. you just like keep selling and in this case let's say i train here and then i go abroad and i want to replicate my training the wall is an inclination i don't think they will be changing the inclination for every person that wants to try so there probably have to be a commitment. I say no, we no, are five no, guys no. climbing. Actually, yeah. that's kind of should be kind of an individual tool. I mean, you can use it with your partner, but it should be an individual tool. So when you are using it, nobody else is using it unless they are doing the same session than you are. And normally they have a mechanical regulation on the side. So you just set the problem that you will be doing and you, you set the angle for that problem. So but if I'm climbing and then after me, there's another person climbing that is on an entirely different level. They're gone, not going to adjust the steepness yeah, they between, won't. between each person. Like I said, if you're doing a session, the, then you're, it's, if you're doing a one hour session there, then you're using it. it it's oh, yours. So it's not either they are climbing with you and they are trying the same stuff or at least the same stiffness or yeah, then you don't move it. But that's not the point. The point is that, I mean, we can agree on for sure, even if, if we have different levels, we can agree in, on some inclination of the wall and then we can both work on that inclination, even if we're doing different holds. So it's also not impossible to manage. 
I see. I just found it interesting. Yeah. And again, coming to the innovation idea, we see innovation everywhere, even in the holes themselves. So probably in the future, some other method of using the holes in a different way will appear that just adds to these training tools that athletes have more and more. About that, to be honest, I think it's a great tool, but I think it's a little bit hyped right now because it's like this really good looking gadget and you know so it's appealing it's new it's, it's sexy in a way uh, so people want to try it but i don't think that climbing for the vast majority of the users will be even connected with that that's what i feel at least i want to because otherwise then a root setting also it's kind of pointless at some point because you just have a computer doing different combinations and the walls are there. You just you, you have somebody charging the entrance and it's it. You know, yeah. it's like you have, that, that's totally the opposite of what I would like climbing gyms to be. For instance, we had a lot of uh, chances of uh, working with uh, climbing apps where you, again, you save your roots you save your score you give score to the road setting and but although these all sound like really good ideas i always felt that it will lead people to be more time on the screen and less time on the gym you know and that's i like that when we are on the gym i don't see phones i don't see screens they are on the backpacks there and people are there. They are mingling, they are climbing, they are discussing their own stuff. When, when you start putting too much layers of uh, new technology onto something that at least it has its roots on the nature and, you know, like being disconnected of all the rest, because then all the other problems come. You are in your phone, then you see, oh, I have an email that I need to... You're already losing the, the mood and the mindset to be there. Uh, I know there is a lot of money going in on the industry to like develop apps, uh, augmented reality, you know, all this stuff. But maybe a share of the of the community will go that way. I think it's quite probable, but I think the majority it will stay on a more traditional uh, way of doing stuff. I could not agree more with what you said with the fact that people tend to spend more time on the screen if they adopt this kind of methodology. I felt exactly the same thing when I first came across this idea of the movable wall with the lights. It was in a video in YouTube, I think it was Magnus' channel, Magnus mm -hmm. Meetable. Yeah, yeah. And usually his videos are he with his friends or relatives just climbing the walls and talking and laughing. And this video came to my mind exactly because of that idea where this guy was showing him how to climb and they were just both looking at the screen all the time and then adjusting the lights and explaining the mechanic and I felt that like these guys are looking at the screen all this time it draws the magic away and the experience and the fact that we do sports in a way to go away from the digital life that we already live during the day I think it's a bit sad. Human nature trying to enhance reality, you know, somehow all the time. But at the same time, I think more and more and more people are valuing every day, like disconnecting and just like appreciating 
the basic stuff, you know, like the, the simple stuff. So it's more of a, I feel it's more of a wave in that sense that we started with no technology, no digital technology. And then we created all this digital technology all the media, which was the apex or actually I want to believe it was the apex during the last decade with Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where everyone just tries to maximize their time on the screen. And I hope that this next decade of 2020, we see it going back where people realize, as you said, this was too much. We need to cut down on some stuff yeah. and go back to the basics. Also, I think sometimes it happens with the technologies that you have this potential. So you want to enforce this potential, like for instance, with the VR, let's say. So virtual reality, it's been here for many years already. I mean, they've done uh, 3D movies for, I don't know, 20, even more, I think. Uh, but it never like, you know, really clicked and became the standard because it's not really needed. It's just something fancy that you do from time to time. But I, I don't see it the same way. I don't see it like it will be a standard, at least in the near future. Because you're, you're just, you have the technology, but the potential doesn't bring enough benefits to support the costs and also the, the value of the experience doesn't uh, go with the um, complexity of having to use glasses or, oh, I'm going to watch a movie in your home and it's going to be VR, but I don't have the glasses to go to you. So, you know, it just adds more elements, more complexity. And then it's not that big of an extra, a big of a bonus to just like pay more for the TV, to have the glasses, you know, all this stuff. So, yeah, I think this is just an example. Maybe it's not the best one, but uh, there is a lot of technology that sometimes people feel, oh, we have the potential to do this and it will be a major strike, but then it kind of is not really worth it. To... Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that sometimes technology just becomes a burden and people just want to apply a technology just because, just for the sake of it, just to say, yeah, I'm cool, I use the latest tech. And then you ask them, do you really need to do that? You could have used a simpler one. And chances are they could have done a simpler one. There is even a saying for this that goes that you give a hammer to a boy and we'll just bash on everything he finds. So meaning yeah, yeah, that it doesn't really need to bash it. Just, but just because it has a hammer, it will just bash everything because that's human nature. But I also disagree as someone who has a life goal. So my life goal is to one day be able to play a samurai game in a virtual reality, as if I were actually a samurai, because I love fighting with swords. Yeah, but I mean, that, that doesn't contradict what I was saying. I mean, I'm not saying that virtual reality is not a thing or there is not, I, I mean, I'm just saying that I don't see it as a standard in every place. But I Where believe, we see screens, yeah, but let's I say. think it will become a standard in the next decades. Well, I, I the don't. The same way that we've been progressing from the super shitty screens of mobile phones and they've gained, they've gaining color, they've gaining texture, they've gaining well, dimensions, they're gaining audio. I don't because I don't think the need is there for in the vast majority of things. I, I see it easier 
to enter the gaming world, for instance, like you said, than the TV world. Or I don't need to watch the news on a 3D dimension. I don't need to see the price or the or the if my flight is on time or not on the airport on a 3D screen. You know, it will. If you see it, it's, oh, okay, that's cool. But there's no need for all the effort that comes with it. Uh, so I don't see that if there's not a big need for the application, then it's kind of pointless. That's what I feel in most cases. But like I said, for instance, the immersion, like you said, on, on the gaming, yeah, that will make a huge difference. That will make a huge difference. I, I think for gaming and also then you're cutting stuff because you can play the samurai and you don't need to put the custom of the samurai you already see like that you, the same for your enemies or so you can just have like a, a blank uh, green wall on a big and you whatever and inside that place you can do and be whatever you want and who you want so that will really cut a lot of costs and make it simple to just like uh, emulate different environments um, but I don't see it as a standard like on every screen, let's say. That's fair. But if there is a lesson that history has taught us is that we don't know anything that's going to happen. Oh yeah. So much. Let's say we are in the eighties and you, you say, do you, do we actually need to have a com computational tool or a calculator or need to have my flight tickets in my pocket? I'll just print and go there. To the boarding and why do i need everything in my pocket that's that's well, not, it's one never going to happen pocket, but in the mobile phone and now yeah, like or, i said it's one less thing in your pocket it's one less thing that you can forget is so what if you do the same reasoning and we go into the future and then people say okay if i can have some augmented reality in my eye in my retina or if i can have some glasses that work as a virtual augmented. reality yeah why do i need my phone in my pocket then you will be cutting the phone. No, I mean, about the phone and the, the support is that, like I said, virtual reality was just an example of people trying to enforce technology where I think there is not a big need. Mm -hmm. uh, for instance, I know that they are working on medics and doctors being able to do surgery uh, remotely. And for example, on this case, virtual reality probably will be a huge step forward for them because the immersion will be totally different. Also for the training of the aspect, like they train as if it were a real context and you can really tell the difference between yeah. a real body. Or for training in most cases, especially for extreme stuff, like if you want to train people for like they did on the airplanes in the 80s, but with a bigger immersion, I see the technology there like having a, a big, uh, a big part of the equation, but again, not inside a climbing gym or, you know, going to the park or I, I think technology as is place also. And sometimes you try to put it everywhere, let's say. So in terms of climbing specifically, do you feel that climbing will remain a technology-less sport in um, terms of the hardcore approach in terms of you are a person you go to a wall 
a wall is physical, you climb on holes, the holes are physical and you have that physical experience without needing actual layers of technology on it. But I'll put it like this, I, I'm, like you said, I cannot predict the future and it's kind of pointless to try, but as we keep adding technology layers to the sport, we'll be going far and far away from the route which was climbing outside on the rock. And then we already have this and I'm totally comfortable with people that just climb indoors, never outdoors. I totally understand it. Uh, I would say I even endorse it if it's your thing. But the, the same reason we try to promote people going to the rock is that they understand where the sport comes from, you know, like where is the route and why we are doing this and how it starts. And as you keep adding layers and layers and layers of technology, it will be more of a video game in the future and less of a sport. You, you know, it's, yeah. and maybe it will be all of these. I mean, it, it doesn't need to be inside a box. Maybe there will be all these layers and then people decide where they want to be in between. For sure, I know that if there was a virtual climbing gym, I will try it at least once because uh, for the experience. Meaning if you were sitting in your sofa, you put the I don't know, maybe, yeah, we don't know. Or maybe even inside a pool with some mask and just try it. I, I have no idea. It would be cool if you're underwater and climbing underwater. Yeah. I mean, you have more pressure, more... I have oh, no that idea. That would be awesome. Yeah. Okay. That would be cool. But I think the future is exciting, at least in virtual reality or augmented reality. I really, really look forward to being alive in three or four decades from now, just to see what humanity comes up with. And I hope I have enough health to... To enjoy it. Yeah, to enjoy it. <laughs> because I said, like, I will die happy if I can just play as a samurai and just play with swords. That's something I've always wanted to do as a kid. But you always need the other person. You need a sword. And if you could just put a headset on and just live in that world, be but, awesome. but we're talking about technology growing and just before we change the subject uh, we're also still trying to find out what is our technology threshold what is our limit and how much technology are we able to cope with in our life you know because we are the generation that just like exploded with technology with screens we always have a screen it does we're always working on the screen you know like everybody nowadays that's totally different for like 40 years ago or so so i think we're still trying to understand what are the good things and the bad things that will come with it and uh, both on health and also mental health and socially so I think that's one of the things as a society that we'll need to learn what is our threshold and how far should we push technology and how much should we integrate and when and how often, you know, lots of questions around that. So, For sure. And again, I have the feeling that if we get to the point that society understands that there's just too much technology all the time, these moments of sport, of leisure, of it will be the moments where you want the less technology as possible and as standard as possible at that time uh, as we are today. But because for sure what is for us now it's much technology, maybe in 30 years that's zero technology because everything else it's, it's super tech. 
So yeah, it's very yeah. complex. Yeah, I feel that technology will always be there and will be more and more immersive and invasive. Invasive in the sense that it also comes inside our bodies. But I hope that we as a society just learn to use the technology. I mentioned earlier, the decade of the 2010s, it, was a, it has been a disgrace in terms of mental health, in terms of how people dose and act online. We don't really know what to do that. And oh, I hope that from the future. You said we are in the hammer stage, so we just got to hammer and we are hammering everything. So <laughs> again, goes over on my point. So now we need to understand when to use the hammer. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm not saying the hammer is not a great tool, but we don't want to use the hammer all the time. So I will see. Just to wrap it up, because we're already extending a bit, yep. I wanted to summarize what we have been talking about and ask you this. What is the best thing about climbing for you? What fascinates you the most? What attracted you to this sport, to this modality and what keeps you engaged in it? That my, that my mind is always engaged more than my body. When I was doing other sports and I always did sport, it was the other way around. The body was engaged, sometimes totally, and then the mind, depending on the, on the issue, was not or just a bit or just enough. And for me, being creative, I also need to be challenged all the time. So that's what I like about climbing. I'm always challenged. It doesn't matter. It that, like again, what we said, it doesn't need to be really hard, it, but it can be really fun and interesting, even if it's easy. And that's what I try to now to promote as a root setter because that's what I enjoy as a climber, as a user, is that playing, you know, just this gaming side, and also it's a sport where you really understand your progression it's really easy to feel when you are progressing and what you are progressing in you know and another thing that i like because i'm not a very competitive person on this on the way that i don't want to be better than anyone else per se uh, but i want to be as much better as i can so uh, and that's what I like about climbing, it's totally individual. That's why when people are on the gym, even if they are trying the same boulder, they tend to mingle, they tend to cooperate in the same solution because they're not really competing to each other. Because you know that if you're not doing it, it's because you're missing it. It's your fault, not because somebody else is better than you. And when you've done it, you know that you've done it because now you are better than you were before and not because maybe the other guy is tired or, you know. So, of course, we've been talking a lot about competition and climbing and it's an aspect and it's a side of it. But in the core of the sport, I think you're challenging yourself both mentally and physically. And that's what I like most about so you, it's like you're fighting the version of the past of yourself and you're trying to yeah, become exactly. better than exactly. you were yesterday. The, um, it's, there was in a video game, uh, I think Gran Turismo, I'm not sure, where you, in order to practice, they put the ghost of your fastest lap. 
So climbing is this, you always have the ghost of your fastest lap there and you're trying to overcome it. And when you do, you know that you've done better. But now you have a, a better ghost and it never ends. Self-feeding mechanism. And exactly. Goes and goes and goes. So it's, it's the same in climbing. That's why what we were discussing what was a great boulder two years ago now can feel really boring or annoying or whatever because you're already on another level you're giving value to other stuff and you know so i think that you just come up with a great idea for virtual reality in climbing you just create the ghost of yourself climbing well if and you're climbing and you're climbing you can't you know you, you you'll be able to do it on speed climbing but you won't be able to do it on uh, boulder climbing at least i mean not a hundred percent because the point is that you your the point of climbing and boulder is that you're already you're always challenging yourself with new stuff so there's no mirror for that there's no ghost for that that that's the point it's like this philosophy of uh, i i read once about uh, being a father that you need to teach your son how to deal with the world that you don't know. So you cannot teach, uh, when you're teaching your son, you cannot teach them by the standards of today. You need to prepare him for the stuff that you have no idea what it will be. And climbing, it's the same. You need to prepare an athlete for tomorrow finding a tire in the wall and still being able to cope with it or, you know, whatever new element, new problem, new movies. And for that, your yesterday, it won't help you. You know, it's just like try to be as diverse, as experimental as possible, creative as possible, and try to create new situations where you're always trying to surprise the... So having the mirror image kind of removes the surprise of the equation, let's say. That's a beautiful idea that you as a father, you just prepare your children for not for the world that you lived in but for the world that they might encounter in the future yeah which you have no idea where it is and then it's way more complex but that's what you need to do it's same as a coach it will be impossible for our parents to prepare us for the internet for all the digital problems because they didn't have that i concept even i mean i my first computer i was five or six and it, it was very rare at the time. I think it just came like common to everybody have a computer at home when I was around like 13, 14 years old. So yeah, our parents weren't prepared for that. And then after the computers, we're still talking computers without internet. Then after the computers, then came the internet and the internet was still something like really slow it's just for a few bursts now we are always connected all the time the kids are always connected all the time everybody shares everything pictures meals so it's a total different uh, perspective yeah and but the values are probably what remains what stays constant. exactly and like that's be what kind be honest doesn't matter which technology context you're in just be kind don't trash talk other people listen them out and so do that's good. It. So you need to teach the values and not the context. Exactly. Just to, as a final question, to wrap it up, um, I apologize for the more philosophical question that I'm going to ask, but I usually try to understand what motivates people and 
what is the meaning that they give to their lives. I'm not going to ask you directly. I'm going to ask you this in a different way. Mm -hmm. But in your personal case, what do you believe that is the reason that makes you get up in the morning and enjoy a day? Amongst all the different things you do, what is the unifying value for okay. your life? The, the Japanese have a word for it. It's called Ikigai. You know? What does it mean? I don't know. Ikigai, it's the reason that makes you wake up in the morning and go. So, the, uh, of course, now with uh, being a father, there's a total different layer on it. Uh, but I do where I'm passionate about it. You know, I have this creative... Um, beam let's say that's always working on a way one way or another uh, my wife sometimes even jokes because i kind of disconnect and she said oh i can see already the wheels inside you like <laughs> working yeah. uh, like i said i i'm root setting when i'm driving or not and it's not only root setting but i'm always trying to come up with uh, something than to create something and yeah, that's what drives me. And then I found a way of channeling that to something that I like and that I can sell in a way that I can live out of it. So I'm really, really lucky on that side. Uh, I worked on many stuff for many years and I know what it is to wake up in the morning and count down the weeks, the days for the weekend, for example, or the hours to get out of work because I'm already exhausted. And I don't have that anymore. Right? I mean, when I go to work, I don't go to work. You find the work that is so enjoyable that it's not work anymore. Yeah, it's not work anymore. I mean, for sure, there will be days that I mean, I may be tired or after some time I want to do something else or whatever. But I don't have that inside struggle that I, I know that most people had and I had before that I'm doing it for the money or I do it because I have to or whatever. No, I when I go to job, sometimes I am even looking forward to start to, to work, you know, because that's why I, I, when I'm being creative, I'm doing it because I like it. Not because, oh, well, tomorrow I need to set a problem and I need to. I never said it that way. And I'm, it's, I'm also lucky because I'm never afraid of setting, like running out of ideas or stuff. I found a way of managing the pressure around it and being just relaxed. So, yeah, what I want to do in my life is just like try to set as longer as possible, keep having fun. And another thing that drives me is that the people that climb with me or that are around me, I, I like to help them get their goals, to reach their goals. Either it can be competition or just climb better or be better at something. And if I'm around, that's my goal. I, I like to help them get that goals. So I have this also in, in this part. So I'm quite happy. That's wonderful. I think you're quite happy that you found yeah, something. I'm super happy. Happy and lucky that you found something where you can just enjoy as a work without feeling like work. Yeah. I was really lucky all the time because I always managed to work in stuff that I was passionate about. That's why I worked so many years in the music business. But here now I have control of the process, of all the processes on my own. But And that totally changes a lot of stuff. Uh, brings, brings more pressure and more responsibility on one side, but also, uh, you know, 
you can do stuff your way and that way it's at least for me it's easier to manage that's one of the aspects that i hope that society changes into that we stop viewing work more as an enforcement and but that society becomes organized in a way that it allows for people to explore what actually drives them and makes them happy without yeah. making work feel like work all right thank you very much for coming this was amazing <laughs> thank you and let's, let's see you another time okay thank you bye, -bye. If you like this podcast, consider liking this episode and subscribing to help supporting me in this journey. Thank you.